Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 23rd. I'm Andrew Walworth. Is America ready to remask in order to stop the spread of COVID? This week, it was reported that President Biden is in talks with CDC officials about reintroducing mask mandates and social distancing. And on Wednesday, Biden said that government health officials will likely recommend masking for all kids younger than 12 this fall. Los Angeles County has reintroduced mask mandates. Other cities may not be far behind. And as the great songwriter and performer Marshall Crenshaw once said about his craft, I've suffered for my art, now it's your turn. Painter and collagist Hunter Biden is testing that thesis as the president's son prepares for two upcoming gallery shows where his canvases are expected to go for as much as $500,000 a piece. So what's really being sold here? We'll talk about COVID, mask mandates, and about where art and influence intersect with Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, and Phil Wegman, RCP's White House correspondent. So, Tom, the CDC announced Thursday that the seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases in the United States is up 53% over last week. The Delta variant makes up more than 80% of the new cases across the country. So will America remask? And how is the White House handling this? Well, I hope not. And, you know, Jen Psaki was at the briefing yesterday saying, listen, There is no change in the guidance from the CDC on masking as of now, but we have heard and we have seen some of the largest school districts around the country, LA County, New York, Chicago, have said that they're going to require masks for everyone, uh, vaccinated, unvaccinated, doesn't matter, uh, when school returns in the fall. So it seems like we're headed in that direction. At the same time, we also know that um, the surge of new cases is among mostly the unvaccinated, right? And there was just a story out today, the Pfizer vaccine, you know, 88% effective against the Delta variant. So, you know, we've had some breakthrough cases of people who've been vaccinated and then gotten COVID, uh, gotten the Delta variant. But my hope is that having seen this movie once already and not, you know, just last year, this is not like this is old news. And the way that there was so much fear-mongering on the part of the media and elected officials in some cases, um, that we don't make the same mistakes. And we don't panic. We don't do stupid things. Uh, we don't you know, destroy the economy. We don't radically alter people's lifestyles and people are just starting to get back to, to living their lives. So I'm worried about it, though, because it seems like we're heading in that direction, and I don't want us to go in that direction. I hope we're able to avoid it, but I'm not sure we will. So, Phil, you were at the White House this week, and there was an uh, an outbreak of COVID at the White House. You would assume, of course, that all these people are vaccinated. What happened, and how did the White House handle that? So the, the these are breakthrough cases, we have been told, which is when an individual is already vaccinated, but then tests positive. Uh, for coronavirus after the fact. When that happens, because vaccine efficacy is never going to be 100%, when that happens, though, uh, these individuals who become ill are much less likely to be hospitalized. They're much less likely uh, to face serious health consequences. And, and death um, certainly is, is you know a very small possibility. But still, it's an area of concern. And what my colleagues and I were really surprised about in the media is uh, that this has sort of been unfolding slowly 
Uh, first, you had members of the Texas Democratic uh, delegation come to Washington, D.C. They, they left their state, of course, to deny Republicans a quorum. Um, and then they sort of became uh, celebrities in their own right here in D.C. They met with Nancy Pelosi. They met with the vice president. And then uh, six, uh, six members of that delegation come down with coronavirus, and none of them were wearing masks. And so uh, later we find out that a staffer at the White House uh, was, was sick with COVID. We found out that a member of Pelosi's staff was sick with COVID as well. That was a bit of the tip of the iceberg here, though, because as Jen Psaki later told us, uh, she confirmed that one of the vice president's aides was sick. But then she said that there had been other breakthrough cases. And um, this White House, you know, the, the press has pushed Saki on this a number of different times. And Saki has made clear that the White House is not going to reveal the numbers of breakthrough cases of individuals there at the White House. She has said instead that um, if there is anyone who has contracted COVID, but they come close to any of the four principals on campus, be it, you know, the president, vice president, uh, first or second um, family members, that then the media would find out. Uh, until then, though, uh, the, the administration is sort of saying, look, statistically, these breakthrough cases are going to happen. And, um, you know, we'll be transparent in the worst case scenario. Until then, uh, the press is going to be left in the dark. Is the fear that by letting people know about the limits of the vaccine, that this will keep people who haven't been vaccinated yet from getting vaccine? In other words, is this a messaging problem where they really are trying to get people to get the vaccine and at the same time they're saying, oh, the vaccine isn't 100 percent? Yeah, I, I, I assume that it is. Um, Saki and the, the White House haven't come out and said that, but it's got to be in the back of their minds, right? They're trying to get the, the rest of the uh, country who's vaccine hesitant to to, to hurry up and, and get the shot already. Um, they haven't articulated a reason for for why they're they're not telling us how many breakthrough cases there have been, other than you know some strange commitment uh, that Saki mentioned uh, that the administration had made during the transition. Um, a commitment, by the way, that that they have not been able to provide to real clear politics. We've we've asked several times; they haven't shown it. Um, but I think this gets back to sort of what what Tom was saying, right? Like it's a, similar to the question of masking, because if you have the White House telling the public we had X number of breakthrough cases, then yes, you've got a lot of people who are going to be like, all right, well, look, you know, the vaccine isn't effective. They they might have the wrong conclusion. It's similar to the masks in that Biden said that the new policy was you either get vaccinated or you wear a mask, but then people are, are still getting sick. So if, if you bring back a mask, then maybe that uh, tells someone you know wrongly in their mind that the vaccine isn't effective. And I think the White House is, is um, they're dancing around this issue. And uh, I think in the end, we will, we will find out that transparency might have been the best policy, but it might take them a while to figure that out. Tom, what do you think? Well, I think that uh, not to disparage Phil or his colleagues, I think there's there's also, you know, as with everything these days, the double standard is sort of glaring. You remember when oh, the Trump White House, right? The, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination event was branded a super spreader. 
nobody's calling the the Democrat Texas Democrats super spreaders, even though they they're they are in fact spreading cases of COVID. And we don't know how many now. And again, it was that was the first time. So in that sense, maybe it was more novel and more urgent. But Phil can probably tell you how much effort and energy was spent by the White House press corps peppering the administration with questions about who and where and when and why and all of that. And here Jen Psaki just steps up and says, yeah, we're not really going to tell you. And, you know, it seems to be fine. And and so I remember being in the Rose Garden during Amy Coney Barrett's official nomination. And it's not an exaggeration to say that reporters were sort of listening to what the president and what that nominee was saying. But they were also making lists of who was there, who was wearing a mask and who wasn't. And I think that one of the reasons why we don't see the same sort of urgency today is obviously the the vaccine, right? Like the vaccine mitigates a lot of the more serious health health concerns. But yeah, um, it is interesting that the, the press is not you know hair on fire in the same way that they certainly would be um, if if you know this was a Trump administration. And I don't think the science. Uh, would change that. I think that instead it would be a double standard and we would have several of my colleagues, you know, demanding more serious answers. We would be back to this, this pandemic parlor game, which was who was wearing a mask, who wasn't, you know, when did we see them last publicly and were they anywhere close to the president? So Phil, do you think that reporters will be forced to mask up at the White House anytime soon? I think that that would be a pretty big step uh, because again, if you're asking those reporters to wear masks, the implicit signal that you're sending to anyone who watches that press uh, conference is that vaccines are not enough. And I'm certain there's, you know, like we can make, we can explain about vaccine hesitant, vaccine efficacy. Like we can have all of these, you know, rock solid explanations. But when, but when you're explaining, I think, I think you're losing on this front. Hmm. So Tom, with public health in general, all these public health measures, we know that solutions or things that are good for us from a public health point of view aren't 100%. I mean, we all wear seatbelts, or we try to wear seatbelts. We know that you could still die in an automobile crash. You know, we know, and if you don't know personally, you all know the stories of someone who smoked two packs a day their whole life and never got cancer. Still, the prudent thing is maybe not to start smoking in the first place. So why is this so difficult? Is it just because it's so surrounded with politics? Because it seems to me, it's not that difficult to understand that the vaccine is important. It helps you. It helps you from getting too sick, but it's not 100%. Right. Well, this is, again, I think, going back to the initial reaction to the virus itself. First, it was, we just need to stop the, you know, bend the curve, stop the spread, and not have hospitals overwhelmed. But that very quickly morphed into we need to stomp out the virus to zero. We can't tolerate any cases of this. And anybody who who suggests there is some sort of risk trade-off involved is trying to kill your grandmother. And the, so the rhetoric became very overheated, very political, very quickly. Again, I'm sure part of that has to do with the fact that Donald Trump was in office. Um, but we're... We're making the same mistake. So we have a piece on Real Clear Politics this morning. Catherine Wu from The Atlantic says, four reasons I'm wearing a mask again. She is a uh, Stanford graduate. She is a PhD in immunology and microbiology from Harvard University. Okay. And she starts the piece by saying, uh, you know, she's fully vaccinated. 
And But here are her four reasons that she's going to put on a mask. One, she says, let me be clear. My chances of getting sick are low, very low, especially if I'm thinking about the disease in its worst forms. And then, But then she says, masks slash the risk of all of these uh, outcomes dramatically. She's, she's about 31 years old. She graduated in 2013. Her risk of contracting the disease, right, is minuscule and her risk of, of being harmed by the disease now that she's vaccinated in a, in a significant way, being hospitalized or dying from it is, I mean, I wish we could put numbers. We should put numbers to this so that people, when they see it's 0. 0.00002, that's the risk involved. They'll be more like, okay, well, that's a risk I'm willing to take, right? To, to not wear a mask or to go do live my life. Um, so we're back in this cycle where, you know, we've got even experts like Catherine Wu in The Atlantic are suggesting that we need to go back to wearing masks. And it's, 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 it's unfortunate because I don't think we're making the risk analysis that we do. We're never going to get rid of this virus. Never. It's going to be like the flu. We are going to have to get yearly shots or boosters or whatever. And we know not even everybody, you know, two-thirds of the country roughly doesn't get a flu shot every year. And so the idea that suddenly we have this new standard for this disease, which in some cases is, is more transmissible, but not necessarily more lethal if we take our proper precautions, we just seem to have lost lost perspective and lost the idea of, of mitigating risk and that sort of risk analysis. There are still plenty of folks out there who want this thing stamped out. It's got to be to zero. It's got to be now. And we can't tolerate... Uh, you know, any level of rising cases anywhere in the country, and therefore we all have to go back to masks and lockdowns. I mean, it's insanity, in my opinion. I don't, I, I hope we don't go back there, but there are certainly some people that want to head in that direction. And I think this overreaction is is an explanation for something that we're seeing from a lot of people who are vaccine hesitant. They see that overreaction, and they are less likely to go get vaccinated themselves, like the gentleman that CBS News interviewed in his hospital bed. He had gotten COVID. He was recovering from COVID. CBS News says, will you get the vaccine now? He says, no, of course not. They said, would you have gotten it a week ago? And he says, no. And they say, why not? And he says, because I don't want anyone shoving it down my throat. And the incredulous CBS News reporter says, shoving what? The science? I think that we, we make vaccine hesitancy too complicated sometimes. There are a lot of people out there who have lost all their reserves for public trust. And it is exactly what Tom was talking about earlier. They, they heard, you know, the 10 days to slow the spread. And then the, you know, three or four months, they heard the flip-flop on masks. They've seen the reversal on the question of, you know, the lab leak. And they're just tired of being told that you must do something. They're ready to mitigate risk on their own terms. But I think what they're not willing to do is uh, listen to any public health expert who is making this not just a question of risk, but instead a question of morality and authority. And I think some some sort of some Americans, uh, especially Americans not on the coasts, they are just saying, "Yeah, no, you're not going to tell me what to do. You ruined my livelihood this last year and a half. Go pound sand." Well, let's talk about someone else's livelihood right now, which is Hunter Biden, who is just the gift that keeps giving. <laughs> He has no formal training as an artist, um, but he has two gallery shows coming up this fall. His canvases are expected to go for more than, uh, for or some for as much as five hundred thousand dollars a piece. Now, 
I did want to put this in perspective when he was with Burisma, where he, he was making $50,000 a month uh, as a board member. Uh, the lowest price canvas is $75,000. So let's assume it takes him six weeks to create one of these timeless pieces of art. Phil, is this a real problem for the White House at this point? I know it came up in, at, the, at, the, at the press briefings this week. It's it's uh, like I think the public has gotten used to the fact that Hunter Biden is kind of a shady businessman, to say the least. Um, I think that the White House explanation that, oh, it'll be anonymous and that makes it better is sort of ridiculous here because the anonymity only sells that are at a higher premium. Because now that there's a system in place where we don't know who's actually writing the check to Hunter Biden and the White House insists that it's a airtight system where Hunter will not know and the White House won't know, but his gallery will, um, that actually you know, allows someone to come in, uh, a bad actor, buy a piece of art and under sort of the cloak of anonymity publicly can then sort of turn around and say, hey, Hunter, uh, did you see you know, your original artwork that is on my wall that I bought for half a million dollars? Um, by the way, we should talk about... Uh, you know, you know, the bug that you should put in your father's ear the next time the two of you visit. Um, like, it's very easy to see how this gets into an ethical gray area. Even former Obama administration officials have said that this is a joke. Um, the White House continues to stick by this. And I think that, um, you know, the, the, the public is just sort of saying, all right, well, we knew he was crooked. He's going to be crooked. The White House said they were going to have these higher ethical standards, it doesn't seem to be the case. As Phil pointed out, the gallerists have said that Hunter is going to be at these gallery openings meeting with potential buyers. So, Tom, does this just stink to high heaven or what's going on? Yes, it does. <laughs> and as Phil mentioned, even the Obama era ethics uh, person said this doesn't pass the smell test. I mean, it's a, it is a joke. And, you know, the White House came up with this thing. Well, we've crafted, we've worked with the gallerists. We've crafted this solution that is going to protect the integrity and anonymity so that there's no influence peddling, yada, yada, yada. And then two weeks later, they're saying, well, you know, Jen Psaki's up there defending Hunter Biden, attending these gallery uh, showings with potential buyers being there. And we're supposed to believe that that there will be no discussion about, I mean, first of all, he's going to know who they are potentially, right? They're not going to be anonymous to him anymore. Now, they may or may not buy something, but still, I mean, he's going to see who's in the room. So even on that score, it's just it's just ridiculous. But yet Jen Psaki defended this as, quote unquote, reasonable uh, for him to pursue his new profession, which was a, you know, profession is a bit of a stretch anyway. I mean... So, I mean, this this whole thing is just, again, I hate to I hate to harp on the media, but if this were Don Trump Jr., if this were Ivanka, if this were one of the Trump kids, this would be a nonstop, you know, feeding frenzy, crazy. Yes, Jen Psaki got one question about it at the briefing yesterday, and she gave this ridiculous answer that did not pass the smell test, and then everybody moved on, and it's like, that's the end of that. It would not be that way if uh, a Republican, particularly Donald Trump, but even any Republican, uh, were in the Oval Office. And this is all on top of the the laptop stuff that's come out. I mean, there's serious questions now about Joe Biden. I mean, he said he never talked to Hunter about his business dealings. There are pictures of him with Hunter Biden's business associates in the White House. 
the media has paid a tiny bit of attention to the painting stories, you know, but but haven't even still will go nowhere near any of the laptop stuff, which continues to be in in my mind every bit as bad if not worse because it involves Joe Biden in office while he was sitting vice president. And those questions need to be answered, but they're not even getting asked. Well, let's, I mean, I, I think that that's a really good case study here. One of the few questions that was asked about that was from the New York Post um, when they got a question about a week ago. Stephen Nelson of the New York Post asked that question. He said, Biden said on the campaign trail that he never talked with his son about business. There are these photos of the president with his son's business partners. You know, would you like to revisit that statement? That was enough for the Biden administration to basically say, all right, you know, we're an ice out the New York Post. Like they're they're very good at playing this game uh, because they control access. And, and that's that's a shame that other folks in that room are, are backing Stephen up more. The other thing, though, I, I do want to say is we ought to give credit where credit is due. It's amazing that, that Hunter Biden has basically realized that art is the best way to launder money because art is subjective. He doesn't even have to he doesn't even have to produce any good art. It can all be sort of like, you know, as the spirit moves him. It could be sort of a, a wannabe Jackson Pollock situation. And because by its nature it's subjective, you and I might say, well, that's not worth anything. But, you know, someone in the art world can say, oh, well, yes, it is because of this or that. Um, you know, there, there is a long history of art uh, auctions being used this way by bad actors. And uh, Hunter Biden was smart enough to say, all right, sign me up. You're saying you got to respect the grift. Yeah, you got to <laughs> respect the grift. You got to respect the hustle. Well, uh, I'm going to just read something, uh, and, and then we're, we're going to have to end it for today. But um, this is from Artnet, which um, if you get a chance, go online, check it out. This, there's an article about Biden, and it is – well, here's what, here's what Artnet had to say about Hunter Biden's work. Biden, who is drawn to abstract figurative forms, is influenced by the pattern-based work of Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. He also loves artists Yeyo Kusama, Sean Scully, Mark Bradford, and David Hockney. This is his dealer. He says, uh, when he, what, what drew him to, to Biden's art, he said, quote, it has that authenticity that I see in a lot of artists that I personally love, be it Lucian Freud or Francis Bacon. And at the end, when they were wrapping up this call with Hunter Biden, the reporter said, what does his dad think about his art? And Hunter said, my dad loves everything that I do. So. Well, and he also says he's the smartest person he's ever met. So <laughs> right. There you go. So um, I want to thank you guys for being here. Um, we're in various shapes and forms on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Come back often. You can always find out more at realclearpolitics.com, as I always do. I urge you to visit Real Clear Politics. Read at least one piece from a publication or a writer with whom you disagree. You can see Phil's piece on the White House. Uh, it's running this morning. And thank you for listening. This has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, July 23rd. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.